Howdy. Welcome to Healthcare Ain't Easy with Chris Matthew. I'm Chris Matthew. Today we have an opportunity to speak to someone who really understands primary care and the business of primary care, so much so she actually started a podcast around this. But first, let me share, I really believe in healthcare. I believe that we all deserve the opportunity to pursue our health and to have a great health journey. But healthcare, it ain't easy. It's overly complicated in, in ways that are beyond comprehension. But we're trying to be able to figure out how can we bring technology, AI, advanced tech, breakthrough tech to help all of us, physicians, clinicians, and patients. How do we help all of us do more with less? And that's what we're trying to achieve today. I've spent the last two decades navigating healthcare in a variety of different ways. And what I know for sure is that healthcare is always going to change. But I also know that if we connect with each other and if we have collaboration and open communication, we can make things better. I believe in that. The purpose of how I try to practice that pursuit for me is, is by living out my why. My why is to connect with people so that we can boldly contribute to an improved world. If you are generously sharing your time with us today, I genuinely am open. I would love to know what's your why, what's your purpose, what's your drive. Follow us on our social channels, share that. I would love to connect with you. What am I excited about right now? It's day two of Athena Health. We're here uh, live at Thrive 2023. We're in Austin, Texas. Um, you know that I'm associated with Sniffle, and this is our debut. We're launching our, our, our solution nationwide. We've lifted up the curtain, and yesterday was day one, and we were met with an incredible response, uh, and we're very grateful for that. We have created something with Athena. We're going to help people do more with less, and we're really thrilled to be able to purpose AI and give it a purpose to be able to help patients and help physicians uh, do more with less. So today we have Katila Farley. Katila is an experienced healthcare executive with a demonstrated history of working in the medical industry. She's a robust information technology pro with a degree focused in registered nursing. She's certified in value-based care. We're definitely going to find out more about value-based care and skilled in ACO. We're definitely going to understand, need to understand what that means risk, care coordination, care transitions, and all aspects of managing and growing a medical practice, both small and large. So Katila, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. First, what's good? In the city or Sure, in, in your in life, general? in the world. How are you? Things are great. I'm having a great time at the conference. There's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of attention. Uh, many people focused on burnout. Uh, it was a great kickoff today, so things are good. Yeah. Burnout is a real issue in the clinician market. Um, let's start there. Um, sure. Your, tell, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Actually, let me, let's back up. Give me the highlight reel of where you're from and what helped shape you to who you are today. So I started out thinking I wanted to be an attorney and just started pursuing that, uh, was the, became the assistant to all of acquisitions for Compass Bank and uh, would go through trusts and affidavits and just learned really quickly, I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have a desk job. I wanted to help people. And so I decided to go to nursing school. 
and I went all in. I left my job, which they said, don't do this. We'll work around your school. They were lovely. Uh, we'll, we'll be very flexible. No, I want to go be a nursing assistant. And I, I think at the time I made $6.13 an hour wow. to do bed baths on the orthopedic floor. So when I say I went all in, I did. Uh, but pursued nursing and um, came out of that and went into cardiac nursing, uh, I happen to be really good stick, so I did IV team and uh, just got a really good understanding of floor nursing, all aspects. When you work on the IV pick team, you're able to, to, you go wherever they're having trouble. So I had the opportunity to work in many different specialties. Um, that is when I found hospice and fell in love with it. In the hospital setting, it's much different than true hospice nursing, but Moved over, went and did hospice nursing full-time, which was incredible, especially at the time of a single mom, and 12-hour shifts weren't going to cut it for me. So it was the introduction to hospice nursing where I, I found a true team approach, and, and that's going to kind of get to where we, we talk about primary care. So fast forward, I ended up becoming the administrator of a primary care practice. At the time, we had six physicians, one nurse practitioner, and we grew to over 23 providers. I, I will credit Athena for helping us with that. We were on another EMR and once, and I used to speak for Athena, so I can say, I've, I've said this many times, uh, they really enabled me to be able to recruit providers easily, them, and we had a really incredible pre-registration platform. But all that to say, just a little bit about me, um, so ran that primary care practice with the intention of the way we performed hospice, which was engaging in social workers, chaplains, having uh, the full care continuum surround that patient in their home and really be able to dive into all their needs. And it, it was really exciting. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield approached our practice and we beta tested their first uh, pay for performance incentive program and really helped them kind of, they guided us, we guided them on what worked and what didn't work in primary care. And uh, we ended up uh, selling that practice um, and joined a, a much larger uh, group. And at that time I transitioned into market director and that was a really fun time to go around and talk to other primary care practices and start being able to help them figure out ways to succeed, embedding technology into those practices, partnering with them. Um, and then fast forward, uh, started taking on full risk contracts and became certified in value-based care and left that position. And now I'm the host of the business of primary care and I get to talk to folks like yourself and I'm usually on the opposite end of the microphone, but um, having a great time doing it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's, that's an impressive background um, from $6 and 13 cents an hour <laughs> to where you are today. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, you're a believer of primary care. Very you're, much so. Yeah. Yes. Um, I listened to episode one with your other co-host and a stat was, was shared there. 7% of all healthcare spend spend is allocated to primary care. That number seems crazy to me, crazy low. Mm -hmm. What, what should we be doing? What, what do you think to move the needle for the healthcare industry and for all of us, for patients, for people, what should that number, what should that percentage be? I think the first thing we need to do is realize 
it is low. And all the talk that's happening right now is what can we do to reduce healthcare expenses? And somehow it continues to be, how can we reduce the fee schedules in the very group that it's the lowest? I think we'd have to start talking pharma. And I mean, yeah. the conversation could get really, really big, right? But one thing I will say is, uh, just full disclosure, my husband is an internist. My son is in his fourth year of med school. And I, I talked to him. If, if you listen to that first episode, you heard Jared, who was at the time, he was a fourth year medical student. And he said, less than 3% of physicians coming out of med school are going into primary care. And that is one of the biggest hurdles that we have to accomplish. Luckily, we do have an incredible movement with nurse practitioners. But if you take a look at the difference in the time it takes to train as a physician and as a nurse practitioner, that's your problem. So we could talk about that because that, that's a major problem. Uh, my son is going to go internal medicine, but not to do primary care. He's considering hospitalist world or he's considering going into cardiology. I'm not sure where he'll go. What I say is go where you're going to be passionate about it because you're going to do it for the rest of your life. He's looking at it as I've now been in school for eight years. I'm looking at at least a three-year residency just to do the first step if I want to do specialty care. And I think we do need to realize that primary care, there does need to be a focus. And there, those that went into specialty care, they went through extensive more training. So we need both. Both are very important. But if we can you know, maybe close the gap a little bit and make primary care a little bit more of a focus, at the med school level, to me, that's step one, and then we could jump into the rest. But that's kind of where I think we're at. I hear from, I, I'm thrilled that your son is open to primary care. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I'm sure that influence has come from you and, and your husband that, you know, he's seen what that, that powerful impact can be. I also know lots of physicians who they're actively advise their children not to pursue medicine. Mm -hmm. And in particular in primary care, it was also on episode one uh, that I heard someone, one of your guests say, uh, and I don't know if they were specifically saying primary care, but a medical student or a physician takes on $300,000 in debt and has no idea how they're going to get paid. And I thought about that and let that wash over me and really just sink in. And I thought to myself, who would ever agree to those terms? I'm going to allow you to give me a debt load of 300K, but I don't exactly know how I get compensated once I become this professional is, is a really hard thing to try to advocate for more people to get involved in primary care. Um, your, your colleague really loves this line. The dollars and cents don't make sense anymore to be in primary care. And I think that that's absolute. When you think about a starting salary of $200,000, which is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money if you are 31 and $300,000 in debt and all, a lot of milestones in life haven't been done. Um, it's a hard thing to navigate. So, okay, you're recruiting physicians, you're growing your practice. Um, how often were you seeing physicians come into that practice with medical debt? Always. All of them. It, it, all of them. Uh, and what was sad was those that would come in with more than 300000 If you take a look at the national salary for family practice, and 
it's a it's an impossible solution to to correct. And so you think about ways that hospitals are recruiting them. So there's a lot of fringe benefits. There's a lot of offers to to pay back those school loans. There's not enough residential spots. Um, and residency spots. Residency spots. Yeah. Sorry. Um, there's not there's not enough. And you you take a look at the entire issue around it, and it you can see why not there's not a lot of people going into it. But one thing I will tell you is providers and I forget who said this to me, but they're scientists. They're the most amazing, smart, compassionate people in the world. And yes, the salary matters. Of course it does if you're going to make that type of a commitment. But many of them are doing it because they have a passion to serve others. And I think that gets forgotten and, and not talked about. And uh, it's important. I, I used to say with the providers, don't show them the revenue. Don't show them the expenses. Show them the outcomes. Show them the data. Show them that what they're doing is making a difference and the you'll impact. get further the impact. Yeah. And so while we talk about it and how do we solve it, I think, too, we just got to be sure not to lose the focus on the why. Your first episode, you mentioned Simon Sinek's uh, The Why. It, it, that was probably one of the most powerful talks to this day. It's, it's an incredible listen. I think it broke the internet. It, it did. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely did. And he is he is amazing. And I, I quote him a lot when I'm writing any kind of leadership or I, I'm talking to folks. Because, and I think that just has to continue to be the focus. Now, people go into specialty care? Absolutely. The passion is there because otherwise, why are you putting in an additional five, eight, ten years in training? And I think as long as we can maintain that focus and give them that ability, the biggest difference I think that we've really got to talk about is the patients becoming so involved. So if you really think about you, the old picture where the the physician is is got the stethoscope and he's sitting in the house uh, around a patient and that that vision of that provider, that physician, uh, caring from somebody from their birth through their life until later, until that physician has grown really old. That concept is changing so much with retail medicine, uh, telehealth, the, the lesser need to establish care for a long continuum. And then you, you kind of pull in all of the regulatory factors and the limitations with COVID, I will tell you, the release of the HIPAA burden and some of those regulatory moments that release so that providers could comfortably give out their cell phone or and not be afraid that there would be a penalty. I think we saw a little bit of what it really was to be a primary care provider. There are, without doubt, in my mind, there are people listening to this that have no idea that description that you just said about a physician coming to someone's home. Mm -hmm. You know, the house call is a foreign concept, and especially as the emergence of these retail models. Obviously, I'm biased, very biased. Um, so I won't necessarily, you know, seed this comment, but I'm curious when it comes to the business model of this, especially since you've worked directly with clinicians you've cared for patients and you're a nurse. So you, you've been in that continuum, the business model that retail clinics and, and you know, the big deal that um, Costco announced a couple of weeks ago, is that a good business model for physicians long-term and, and or nurse practitioners and PAs? Is that a good business model for clinicians? And also 
Is that a good situation for patients to be in? Okay. So I have a lot of thoughts around this, Great. especially when I saw Best Buy Health, which fascinated me. The geek squad goes into the home to help patients set up their remote patient monitoring. The, the what? I know it was, it's mind blowing to sit back and think about it. And I think to myself, why didn't I think of that? Because when we were really working to transition from fee-for-service to value-based care. The idea, what we would always say, and I, I've heard this now, so I'm not going to say we coined it, but we would say this a lot, was we have to get outside the brick and mortar. We have to find a way that we can approach our patients where they're at. The idea of providers performing the same type of medicine that has been done in the past really 100 years is astounding. Like that, that concept of the patients come to me, I set the time. Now, again, wanting to focus on a provider has decided to commit his entire life, years and years. This wasn't a, I think I'll change career. This path was set, a lot of expense placed in it. So really want to respect that, but also to be open to changing how patients can get to you or you can get to them. And so I love the I love the concept if done appropriately. And if we can get past all the regulations that keep getting piled up, that block it, that, that create, again, so much, so many, let's, let's just talk about uh, being able to, t to have a FaceTime call on your iPhone. When, the, when HIPAA released and you didn't have to prove this HIPAA technology, it instantly opened up conversations with, with doctors talking to patients who didn't have a chance to look their best, come at the time assigned, show up. They answered those calls in nightgowns. The providers were able, I, I witnessed care unlike I thought I would ever witness. People would open up their refrigerators and, and take a look. Diabetics who say, I honestly don't know why I can't lose weight. And you look on their counters and you're like, okay, let's talk about the chips that I see sitting there. And let's have this conversation that you have no fresh fruit or fresh oh, now we understand there's an economic issue mm -hmm. and you might need some social services. So the answer is, yes, it's incredible, but it does have to be done in a way that there are guide rails. And, and I do believe that that is the purpose, but, I, but we just need to relax them a, a little bit so that we can get in there. And again, we can partner with folks who have put the technologies in place, but every time I turned around when I was running a practice, it was... Here's another product, here's another product, here's another product. And you have 10 different logins and the teams are working and that's the real problem. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> One of our, uh, Rachel Wallace is the CEO of Healthstar Physicians of Hot Springs and something she's talked to us about is click fatigue yeah. and change fatigue is a real thing for her physicians and her clinicians. And the implementation of yet another solution. Mm -hmm. And we, we have to be better about creating a, a solution an architecture that can support everyone and plan for the future. Well, one thing I want to make comment on that I think is important is, yes, during the pandemic, I think healthcare took 10, year, 10 steps forward, 10 years forward. Yeah. They accelerated forward at least a decade yeah. because it was unprecedented times. And so, you know, best practices and, and lean models were created and without doubt, patients benefited from that where I'm trying not to be overly biased, but I just can't help it. Where I see, you mentioned burnout being a real issue. Yeah. When a physician is doing a telehealth visit and getting 
$18 for that visit, then she has no choice but to then do an insane velocity of patient care that day, right? So now suddenly she's got to crank out 60 patients to make the dollars and cents make sense for her and her life and all the dedication she's pursued and getting that debt monster off of her back. But if she's seeing 60 patients a day, that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for her to find joy in her practice. Mm -hmm. And you know who's really going to be impacted by that long term? It's the patient when she says, I just can't do it anymore. I'm out. Yeah. And now that's another physician we've lost. And so while uh, healthcare advanced during the pandemic, we also saw an unbelievable amount of physicians leave healthcare altogether during the pandemic. 10X, 10X retirements were taking place, at least here in Texas. Um, and, and that's from uh, Dr. Jeff Kerr, who's a chief medical officer at, for Baylor Scott and White. And he was sharing during the pandemic, it was unbelievable how many physicians just said, I just can't do this anymore. And so that's where I see innovation and business models that should be created to be able to do, ser focus on serving both of these, these um, communities. Physicians, how do we help them find joy and balance and enjoy their career? And also, how do we make sure that they can enjoy their career long enough to be there for all of us when we get to the place where we need consistent ongoing healthcare? We gotta have a, a physician community that is vibrant. And if only 3% of people are pursuing primary care, leaving medical school, we got some work to do. We need to have fun. Right. I, I remember uh, we so the providers would say to us, uh, please don't ask me because I'm going to say yes. So if uh, they had a full schedule and one of their patients had a problem, please don't ask me because I'm going to say yes. I, we need you to be the ones to to guide our our schedule and protect us. Uh, and so I think that that leads to the world of value based care, because if you're in a fee for service world, and you're only getting paid for what you do, like you said, 60 minute, you have to churn 60 visits. Uh, but if you can find contracts that give you the ability to care for people throughout their continued, to care for all aspects of their care, and, and you're paid, and, and I know the word capitation can be very negative, but if you can find a way that you have a steady income so that that provider can set their schedule to allow for those quick folks who call and they do need to be seen right away and get them in. I mean, we've, we've seen this coming, right? We saw the, the concierge medicine. Right. We've seen, that's probably where a big portion of it started was the concierge medicine. And the big pull there was, oh, it's, uh, you're not getting the doctor's cell phone number. You're getting this more extensive physical and workup. And, and so if you look at value-based care, that's the, the key concept is these things matter because the more preventative we can be, the better the outcomes will be, the lesser the expense on the end of the road. And I'll talk to folks and I'll say, why do you think your commercial payer isn't interested in, you know, your nutrition? Because by the time you really have a problem, that's going to be years and years and years, you're going to be on Medicare. I mean, Medicaid or Medicare, CMS. You're, you're going to be on those. You're not going to be on that commercial plan anymore. So why should they invest in what's going to happen way further down the line? And that's a big mind when you really think about that. That stinks. It stings. That's because really, you won't pay for a nutrition. You won't pay for a dietitian for me, but you'll pay for my open heart surgery. Right. Yeah. 
It's just a series of band-aids. It's a series of we're band-aids. Just putting band-aids on everything. Yeah. Okay, you've said the words now several times, so let's make sure that we can define value-based care. What is that? And give me the comparison of what do we do today, and then why is value-based care something that you see being to really support primary care? Okay, so that is not a single answer, but what I will tell you is season two of our podcast is a documentary style. It is not an interview and a conversation. It is us, extensive subject matter experts coming together to define it. Because if you ask somebody, what is value-based care? It depends on how far down the road they are to them. So for those clinics that are brand new, uh, maybe just doing some incentive programs, that was known as pay for performance back. Some practices are still there. Uh, They're getting paid to do some things. They get an increase in their reimbursements if they perform a certain percentage of annual wellness visits, if they hit some mammograms, some colonoscopy uh, incentive programs. There's some additional incentive for that. And and if patients are listening, because I hope hope your audience includes both providers and patients, I think it's real important to note that that doesn't mean that they're trying to get you to do things so that they can get some additional dollars. The science behind it is the more proactive we can be, the more preventative we can be, the sooner we can discover things and correct an offset that would happen later, a a terrible moment, a cancer that could go undiagnosed, or perhaps some lifestyle modifications that, if made now, could prevent uh, an open-heart surgery later in your life. Currently, the model we have is is really, it's excellent at catastrophe care, not much else. And if we can make that switch, and I know value-based care is, it's a much more in-depth. And so I'm glad that you have this docu-series coming and uh, the Business of Primary Care podcast, definitely check that out. Let me ask this. So being that you're in the business of primary care, um, what do you, how do you, how do you feel about the future of primary care? Are you Um, optimistic about it? I'm very optimistic about it uh, because I need a doctor when I'm 70. And I tell people about that a lot. And I want a highly educated, well-trained physician leading the charge uh, with an incredible team uh, carrying the weight. And that team needs to include social workers and counselors and provider, uh, nurse practitioners. Uh, It's nurses. It's care managers. I think there's an opportunity for the nursing. I'm a nurse, so I'm going to call this out here. But there's... I think going to be a really incredible moment here for case management to take its next level because it's the coordination of care that is complex. And that's what causes the burnout on the provider. And everybody I'm talking to, they say, oh, well, the primary care physician is going to be the quarterback. Well, we got to talk about his support system because he can't do it all. He's got to have a really great group of folks that can support him. And so I think the initiatives are there. I think that the conversations from what I see in the product world, the electronic medical records, their focus points, it's all to focus in on those providers and support them and make things easier. We just got to get that administrative burden off of them. CMS posted uh, on LinkedIn and it said something about I'm going to get it wrong because I don't have it ready to quote, but the CPT codes are the language of medicine. So I asked my son, who's in medical school, how much time have you guys spent studying billing and CPT codes? None. 
Doctors are going to school to treat the person, the body, the systems, the complexity. And as beautiful as technology can be, we have to be mindful. And you say this, uh, that only providers can diagnose. We need to be mindful of that, support them as much as we can, yeah. but be very clear to let them own that focus. So give them the right support systems. And technology is one of them. Absolutely. Asking physicians to be brilliant clinicians and brilliant business people is an unfair request. It's too much to ask for the longevity for all of us, for the patients and for the docs. Um, yeah, that's, that's crazy because without CPT codes, without ICD-10s, there's no billing. And if there's no billing, then there's no dough and there's, if, then the whole thing goes away. And um, you know, you've mentioned something, licensed clinical social workers, dietitians, the time in my life uh, where I saw a lot of that come together was in the FQHC world. Have you, have you interacted with FQHCs? Do you yeah. see what they're doing in primary care as a model that could be replicated more? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's completely in alignment. Uh, it makes complete sense. Yes. The answer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Full, full. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, do you believe that primary care, or let me ask this, how do you see AI and advanced technology coming in and getting involved with primary care? So the, the whole, Dr. Jessel and I, the CMO of Athena, had a conversation about AI. Um, and I don't mean to keep plugging the podcast, but it's good. I think it's like episode five. <laughs> Plug away. Um, and so, but she, she talks about it. Um, and the, the issue is the boundaries and, and how much we can trust it. Um, because one of the problems back when I was working as a practice manager and I would have lunch with the physicians and they were like, uh-oh, here comes another Dr. Google. Um, and you have, it's very, you have to be very cautious on steering a provider in a direction that may not be the right direction. And so really understanding if it is correct information. And so as long as the technology, those guide rails are solid and it's at its correct information and can't be construed, I see it being extremely valuable. It could, it could take that provider. I was meeting with a provider in a room, and uh, I like to do this. And for other administrators out there, I hope you do this. Uh, so I would, at least once a quarter, I would go sit in every seat of the staff, including patients. And so I had, I'd been sitting out in reception, and I decided I'm going to follow this one patient through her experience. And so as they called her back, I stepped aside and asked her, is it okay? I'm with the clinic. I'm just you know, doing a, a silent look at the, the processes. So I went into the exam room with her. She was there to become an established patient. This one was pretty eye-opening for me. And it was the first time ever being seen. And the provider comes in the room and she looks at this patient and she says, okay, well, um, I don't want to order these labs on you because you've seen your gynecologist and I don't know how they coded it, so I'll need to check on that. What else do you have going on? And they had a brief conversation and she said, okay, so what I'm going to do is have you come back in six weeks once I've had a chance to gather all this information. And I walked out of the room and I looked at that provider and she looked at me and she said, you know what, I've got a solution. If we can get the medical record request forms at, at this bedside, then I could get those signed. And I looked at her and I said, 
we're failing you at every level. You shouldn't even be concerned about this. This should be at your fingertips. And that's when we really started diving into pre-visit planning and how we could extend that visit seven days ahead. And just really driving home that this information should be so much at your fingertips that the provider's not starting, I mean, not even at the 30-yard line, like, like not even on the field when the patient is there to be seen. And I think that's where technology can really come in. Yeah. That's a powerful experience. Um, yeah. Super impressive that you would open yourself up to that, and, uh, but also really beneficial for your patients. Yeah. Uh, and I have to imagine that's that exercise also creates joy for those providers oh, because yeah. now they get to not put off taking care of this patient six weeks later. Yeah. You're here for something and I get to help heal you today. And think about that patient. Yeah. She didn't know any different. And I, I don't know if she'll be listening and think, oh, that, I remember that moment. But for her to have to come back six weeks later for something that should have done been started six sure. weeks ahead. And then how many outcomes could we solve? Like, how many moments did we not diagnose something soon enough because we couldn't start where we needed to start? Wow. That is a powerful exercise. And I do hope more administrators are doing that. Um, if you could grant a few wishes, I'm giving you a magic wand. Okay. And if you could grant a few wishes for primary care, what would they be? Hmm. And I ask you this because I feel like you've been in primary care for a long time. You've, you've actually, as a nurse, working in, alongside physicians, supporting physicians and clinicians, um, growing practices, and now helping people understand value-based care and ACOs and being a guide for lots of people. I feel like you've got uh, a rich knowledge of primary care. So if you were to give wow. them a few wishes, what could that look that like? That one's really hard. Um, I don't know. A society that is as interested in healthcare, not sick care, as they are, because they went into this to keep people well. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, a focus. And that's systemic. Uh, how we even shop at grocery stores is so different in this country than even in Europe. I mean, just the emphasis on healthy food and lifestyle and um, our mental health. Um, I think it would be that is to help that help society have that same responsibility. Yeah. You know? I think those would be amazing. Uh, if, if society could realize what physicians go through to become physicians mm -hmm. and then the burdens that they're laden with while continuing to be physicians and while they want to be empathic and caring and focused on that patient journey they don't know about all the the anchors that are being logged on top of them to slow them down and drag them through this administrative burden most people don't know that about physicians so a wish that i would grant for primary care is that there would be more advocacy for them uh, and i would also advocate that and, and I do think it needs to be systemic. Like I genuinely believe the government has to get involved. And in particular, one, one thing that they could do is double the funding for primary care residency programs. Like 3% are choosing it. Well, that's because those 3% may not be able to get into 
or they, the other 5% may not be able to get into a residency program. And then as a former recruiter, and, and maybe as a former administrator, if you were looking at Dr. Chris's CV and you ask, why did you take three years off? Like, what'd you do for three years between medical school and residency? Oh, I couldn't get into the residency program I wanted. Oh, that's a, yeah. that's not a check mark of a good thing. People make assumptions. Well, it's not, you know, I wasn't just stocking shelves or just Uber, you know, doing gig work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because I couldn't get into a primary care residency program because there were no openings available. And I think that in itself, if we could find a way to grant more openings, and in particular rural health programs, to give people exposure to what that type of environment could be like, and if we could open up more residents, man, this is a lot of wishes I'm giving primary care. If we could open up more residency programs in connection with FQHCs and allow physicians to see that impact of what they could do, I think it would be amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think. Physicians like, like teachers, it's a calling. You do not do this to make all the money in the world. You do this because you want, you have a love of children or you want to create an impact for a legacy uh, of what they're, you know, the future generations. And I, that's what I think about primary care. It's a calling. It's, it's something that they're passionate and purposeful about. They want to pursue it because it means something to them. Um, and if we could help clear the field of all of these, maybe not all the obstacles, I don't know that it's going to take more than the two of us and a few wishes, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot that that primary care deserves. And I'm thrilled that you guys are leading and hosting uh, the Business and Primary Care podcast. I'm going to leave you with our, we're going to do our final question. Chris Shembra is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He wrote a book called Gratitude, <clears throat> excuse me, Gratitude and Pasta. And he creates these great experiences and he asks this question. And the question is, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit to or thanks to, who would that be? You know, John Maxwell does a similar uh, event um, and he, he selects leaders, he takes them to lunch and he asks questions. And uh, I had the opportunity to attend a leadership college uh, and we studied him extensively. So it, it sounds very similar to that. Uh, who I probably don't give enough credit to, would, I would say my mother. And I, I grew up military brat. Uh, my dad, always, always busy. And it was she and I. And, and she really came through in some, at some key points. And so I would say I probably don't give her enough credit. She did not attend a college. Uh, she's a beautician. Um, worked really hard. So dad, military mom beautician, uh, lived a, a many places, um, but she definitely laid a foundation of hard work in me and I should give her more credit. We are uh, grateful for your mom <laughs> and I'm grateful for you sharing your valuable time with us and I'm looking forward to learning from you and your team and I think that the conversation around primary care deserves to be had and deserves to be heard. And uh, so I'm really grateful that you're out there making that happen. And I'm glad to meet you. I'm having a wonderful time and look forward to the rest of the conference. Yeah, thanks. This is uh, Healthcare Ain't Easy with Chris Matthew. We are trying to figure out how to make healthcare better for all of us. We welcome, like, the Tila and I, we can't do this on our own. We can't do this uh, unless we all can come together. So if you've got thoughts, if you've got questions, I want to connect.
Appreciate your time. Talk to you soon.